Part 4. A Well-Rounded Training Putting Forth Effort One of the foundations of Buddhist practice is the conviction that purposeful effort has meaning. The Buddha rejected the beliefs that human life is determined by divine will or fate or randomness. He proclaimed that human beings created their own life and environment by the quality of their actions of body, speech and mind. Luang Po's teachings expressed this right view again and again. Monks were to take responsibility for their lives through their own consistent efforts. They all had the potential for liberation within them. The question was whether they had the determination and the patient endurance to realize that potential. Don't just sit there, waiting for Nibbana to come to you. Have you ever seen anyone successful in that way? Wherever you see you're in the wrong, then quickly remedy it. If you've done something incorrectly, then do it again properly. Reflect on experience. There was no alternative to hard work. Some people become monks, thinking they'll be able to take it easy and enjoy life. But if you've never learnt to read, you can't just pick up a book and start to read it. Some people come here to become monks in order to find happiness. But what does happiness arise from? What is its cause? Hardship must come first. Don't you have to work before you have the money to buy food? To farm the land before you get rice to eat? Hardship precedes happiness. One phrase in particular monks heard again and again over the years. Eating little, sleeping little, talking little. These are the actions of the practitioner. Eating a lot, sleeping a lot, talking a lot. These are the actions of the fool. Patipada Monks often take on special observances in order to get out of a rut or in the hope of accelerating their practice. At the very least, by doing so they exercise powers of diligence, vigor and renunciation, all of which are important qualities for monks to cultivate. However, Luang Po would remind those of his disciples prone to putting their faith in radical but unsustainable asceticism to look closely at the intention behind their undertakings. A short period of heroic effort, followed by a longer lazy period of recuperation, was not, he insisted, a wise or effective strategy for dealing with defilement. Craving for results too easily infected a mind set up in this way. For him, the key to success was patipata or entai patibat, steady, consistent, continuous practice. This is the definition adopted by the Thai forest tradition. In fact, this Pali word patipata simply means way of practice and may be beneficial or unbeneficial depending on context. Here, it may be understood as an abbreviation of Samma Patipata, or right practice. In brief, it was the tortoise rather than the hare.
don't pay any attention to whether you're feeling diligent or lazy. Normally, people do things when they feel diligent and stop when they feel lazy. But as monks, that's not how we conduct ourselves. Whether we feel lazy or diligent, we practice. We have no interest other than cutting things off, in abandoning them, in training ourselves. We are consistent day and night, this year and next, at all hours, indifferent to feelings of laziness or diligent, hot or cold, we just keep doing it. This is called Badibada. Sometimes monks get really gung-ho and sustain it for six or seven days. But when they see they're not getting anywhere, they give up. And then they really lose it for a while, chatting and socializing in a heedless way, until they come to their senses and put in another couple of days' hard effort. Then they give up again, until the next time they feel inspired, and that becomes the pattern. It's like people who throw themselves into their work like there's no tomorrow, digging fields, clearing trees, clearing hillsides, and then, when it's time to take a break, throw their tools down and walk off without putting them away. By the following morning, the tools are completely caked with mud. Then they get enthusiastic for the work again, and in the evening, throw down their tools once more. This is not the way to prepare fields for cultivation. And it's the same for our practice. If you don't think Padipata is important, you'll have no success. Padipata is absolutely vital. Making fire was another of Luang Por's favorite analogies for this principle, one that allowed him to perform a favorite short pantomime. As he spoke, and with a big smile on his face, he would mime the fool who rubs two sticks together until he becomes tired or bored, puts them down for a while, before picking them up once more, expecting to carry on from where he'd left off. Finally, he gives up altogether and compounds his error by insisting that he knows from experience that it's not possible to get fire from wood. There is fire there, Lung Po said, but you're only going to produce it if you keep rubbing the sticks without interruption until the critical temperature has been reached. In the same way, practice can only bear fruit when it is developed in a similarly steady manner. Short bursts of effort, no matter how intense, cannot create the necessary momentum. A fisherman casts his net and catches a huge fish. He becomes afraid that the fish is going to jump out of the net and get away. He becomes so anxious, he grabs at the fish wildly, struggles to get a grip on it. Suddenly, just as he feared, the fish is out of the net, but it escapes because the man's own efforts to grasp hold of it are too violent. There's an old saying, gently, gently does it, but not too gently. That's our practice, keep feeling things out, feeling them out, don't give up. You have to look at the mind understand what it's all about. Try to keep doing the practice, making it consistent. If you're feeling lazy, do the practice.
if you're not feeling lazy, do the practice. That's the kind of continuity that's needed. He often repeated that the craving to get something or become something would always sabotage even the most determined effort. The Buddha taught that putting forth effort is for abandonment, for letting go, for withdrawing from attachment. There should be no desire for becoming and birth, to get or to be anything at all. This effort was to be constantly monitored and tweaked, the goal being a balanced level called Podi, just right. Putting forth effort that moment by moment was maintained at the optimum intensity for achieving one's purpose, Lung Po defined as right practice. Putting forth effort is not restricted to a particular posture. You can do it while standing, walking, sitting and lying down. You can realize Dhamma while sweeping leaves or merely by looking at a sunbeam. It's essential that mindfulness be constantly primed. Why? Because when you are intent on discernment of the truth, there are opportunities to realize the Dhamma at all times and in all places. Knowing now. Luang Por often said that the present moment encompasses everything. It includes past and future because it is the result of the former and the cause of the latter. For this reason, developing the ability to dwell with clarity in the present moment is perhaps the most fundamental of all meditation skills. However, Luang Por said the value of it did not just lie in the lucid calm that resulted from letting go of memory and imagination. It was in the present moment that wisdom could be cultivated. In Dhamma practice, all you have to do is keep looking at the present moment. Look at the instability, the impermanence and Buddha knowing will arise and grow. Keep seeing the truth of all things, that they're impermanent. Pleasure and pain arise and they're impermanent. It's unsure how long they'll last. If our mind sees the uncertain duration of things, the problem of attachment will gradually diminish. The past was gone. The future had not yet arrived. Suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path towards its end all lie in the present moment. This practice of staying in the present is mental cultivation. To put it simply, we must be mindful, have a constant awareness and recollection, knowing what is occurring right now, what we're thinking, what we're doing, what's going on with us. We must look at our mind, constantly mindful of our mood, our thoughts, whether we're experiencing pleasant or unpleasant feelings, whether we are in the right or in the wrong. Reflecting, investigating in this way, the wisdom faculty has already manifested. The eyes see a form, the ears hear a sound, the nose smells an odour, the tongue experiences a flavour, the body a touch, whatever is felt is known. 
whether we think something is good or bad, we like it or dislike it, it's all impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. The Buddha taught us to put these things down, not to grasp onto them. This is called solving problems. In the last five or six years of his teaching career, most of Luang Po's Dhamma talks were recorded on audio cassette. In this collection of talks, now stored digitally, Luang Po deals with a wide variety of themes, amongst which one frequently repeated teaching stands out, that of Maine. The phrase Maine translates most readily as unsure, uncertain, changeful, or indefinite. The Pali word closest to the idea of Maine is Viparinama, usually rendered in English as subject to change. In Thai, Maine is an everyday term that all of Luang Po's audience would have immediately understood. A farmer, for example, asked in the planting season whether he expected to get a good harvest that year, would most probably reply, Maine, if we get enough rain, it should be all right. The phrase Maine here is a simple recognition that things are affected by many variable conditions, for example, how much rain falls, and are thus never completely predictable. Luang Po taught his disciples to practice the perception of main air as a means of cultivating the wisdom faculty. By constantly reminding themselves that both internal and external phenomena were main air, they developed anicca sanya, the perception of impermanence and with practice, the associated perception of dukkha, the inherently flawed, ultimately unsatisfactory nature of experience, and anatta, the conditioned, selfless nature of experience. These perceptions of the three characteristics of existence created a pathway for vipassana, the deep, wordless insight that uproots defilements and leads to the end of suffering. The practice of Mainair achieves its power from directly confronting the ingrained tendency of unawakened beings to invest experience with the appearance of solidity. This sense that the things within and without us are real and substantial is founded upon unexamined assumptions. The perception of changefulness became the tool Lung Po most often recommended to challenge those assumptions. Luang Po chose to use the phrase main air in preference to the more traditional anicjang or impermanent to bring a fresh slant on wisdom development. For his disciples, main air was a familiar, approachable idea deeply embedded in the culture. It demystified Dhamma practice and made it seem immediately practical. The specific emphasis of the Mainair practice may be examined by comparing it to the comparable phrase, this too will pass. Whereas this too will pass reminds us of a future beyond the present experience and so puts it into perspective, Mainair points to the nature of the present phenomena itself. In daily life, Luang Po taught that the main air reflection was particularly effective in dealing with attachments to views and ideas. In this context, the word might be better translated as maybe not. 
whenever the mind was about to draw a conclusion or jump to one, when it was about to make a judgment about something, he taught the meditator to recall, maybe not. Maybe that's not how it is. Maybe that's not how it happened. Maybe that's not what he or she is really like. Whenever the sense of certainty arose, meditators were to temper it with a gentle, maybe not. Even if they were convinced, they were still to reserve a small place in their mind for the possibility of being wrong. Yes, but maybe, just maybe not. In this way, the mind was to become more careful and nuanced in its attitudes. Lung Po gave this practice the greatest importance. Mai Ne is the Buddha himself, he would say. It's the Dhamma. He taught the recollection of Mai Ne, both as a means of re-educating a person's attitude to their life and also as a specific technique in meditation. As hindrances arose in the course of a sitting, he would encourage the meditator to recognize the hindrance as mainair, or changeful, before returning to the breath. As the mind became more subtle, this accumulated perception of mainair, that whatever arises does not endure, is an exercise of the wisdom faculty that ensures that the mind does not fall into the trap of attaching to joy or to stillness and is primed to develop vipassana. When you see impermanence clearly, you become a true monk. Seeing the impermanence, the instability of form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness, the mind does not attach to the five aggregates. It doesn't matter what it is. Even if something happens, that upsets you so much that tears are forming in your eyes. Remind yourself, this is Mainair. Always bear this in mind, with your sati, with your alertness. Whether you feel satisfied, dissatisfied, think this is good, this is bad, see it all as Mainair, and you can release the attachment. When you see things as ultimately without value, the letting go occurs automatically. Mainair is the object of vipassana. When something arises, call it Mainair. Don't forget this word. Don't let it drop. The Buddha taught us not to grasp onto the good or the bad. Whatever arises, pool your resources in this word. It's the source of wisdom and the object of vipassana. Make it your constant focus of attention. It will take you beyond doubt. Mainair is a tool to uproot attachment to experience. It will enable you to see the Dhamma clearly. One of the means by which Luang Po sought to inculcate the principle of Mainair in his disciples' minds was by maintaining an element of unpredictability in their daily lives. Changes would be introduced to the monastic schedule without prior warning and with no indication of how long they would last. A monk preparing for the annual rains retreat at Wat Bapong might be told a day or two before it began that he would be doing the retreat elsewhere, that he should gather his things together, clean up his kuti and be ready to leave within the hour for a monastery hundreds of kilometres away. It was a style that kept monks on their toes 
and it enabled Luang Po to create a singular atmosphere in his monastery, one in which the calming effects of simplicity and repetition were enlivened by a sense that nothing could be taken for granted. Ajahn Jan remembers how plans could change in a single moment. He'd say to me, Get your bowl and rose. We're going to such and such a place. By the time I got back with my things, he'd say, Change of plan. This happened so often that I got a real feeling for Maynair. Afterwards, I came to understand it to mean dividing things up 50-50, maybe, maybe not. I adopted it as my guiding principle in practice. Podi Podi was another common everyday word that Luang Po's disciples got to hear a great deal. Podi means just right or just the right amount. It refers to the optimum amount, neither too much nor too little. If a robe fits well, neither too long nor too short, then it's podi. For some people, a sitting meditation period of 30 minutes might be podi. For others, podi might be an hour or more. Podi was the term that Luang Po used when he wanted to talk about the middle way more informally. He said that the ability to tune in to the Podi mode for any activity is at the very heart of Dhamma practice. He would often tell the story of Venerable Sona, recounted in the Anguttara Nikaya 6s, number 55, who was taught by the Buddha to practice meditation in the same way he had formerly played the lute, with strings neither too taut nor too loose. Luang Po taught his disciples to develop a sensitivity to what was podi in every area of their lives. At the mealtime, awareness of podi meant taking just enough food to fill the stomach, but not so much as to overeat and cause drowsiness or laziness. Podi in sleeping meant taking enough rest to refresh the body, but not so much as to be indulgent. Everything had to be not too fast, not too slow, not too tight, not too loose. He cautioned against the understanding that upholding Pordi as a standard implied a bland moderation in all things. Pordi was to be gauged by the extent to which an action was conducive to the solving of a problem or the attainment of a goal. At certain times and places, a practice might seem to be extreme in the short term, but with regard to overall progress, it might in fact be Podi. In any endeavour, Podi represented the optimum, the most efficient strategy. But how was a monk to know when his practice was Podi? Luang Po would answer this question with a simile. It's as if you want to row a boat straight across a swiftly flowing river. You don't aim your boat in a straight line, you aim slightly upstream, allowing for the strength of the current to carry you a little downstream, and so, consequently, straight across. In the same way, it's wisest to pitch your practice at a slightly more demanding level than you believe to be pordi, and allow for the strength of defilement to carry you down to the correct level. I teach you to eat little, 
sleep little, talk little, everything has to be little. But is that poddy? Actually, it's not. It hasn't reached that even consistency. But I teach it to enable you to recognize poddy, just rightness, to see what is appropriate for you. Rushing too much is not right. Know how to balance different interests until you find the right amount. If there's too little, then add to it. If there's too much, then take some away. This is right practice or poddy. In the suttas, the Buddha teaches the middle way that avoids the two extremes of sensual indulgence and empty asceticism. Luang Po liked to expand the meaning of these two extremes to include like and dislike, pleasure and pain. By doing so, he sought to make clear that the teaching was not so much about a general approach to spiritual development as a moment-by-moment stance towards mental states. Just rightness means not being drawn into either of the two extremes. Gama Sukhalikanu Yoga being lost in pleasure and comfort and happiness, indulging in thoughts of being good, excellent, sublime. Attakilamathanu yoga, aversion, suffering, dislike, anger. These two extremes are not paths that a monastic should follow. The monastic sees those paths, but he doesn't follow them. He doesn't attach to them. In order to attain peace, he lets go of them. He abandons them. The ability to maintain practice on this optimum poor D level was dependent on the wisdom faculty and the perception of changefulness. The practice becomes poor D when you recognize the impermanence of every mental state that arises and tell your mind that it's mainair. Patiently endure right there. Don't move onwards from that knowing and don't retreat from it. Persist at that point, and before long, you will come to the truth. Leaders of communities were also to constantly refer to the sense of podi, whether in implementing monastic regulations or determining a daily schedule. In this context, podi was to be acknowledged as a temporary balance that would need to be regularly recalibrated rather than a standard that once achieved could be sustained long-term. After an initial flurry of enthusiasm, there would be a slow but inexorable slipping of standards until an admonitory discourse from Luang Po would re-establish the standard. Recognizing this pattern, Luang Po would start each new cycle on the strict side of Podi as a way of retarding the process. Once, when a monk complained that the standard Luang Po had set was too strict and tight, Luang Po replied, Tight is good. Before long, it will ease off by itself. Learning from Nature By founding his monastery in a forest, Luang Po was upholding a venerable tradition stretching back to the time of the Buddha himself. Almost every one of the monasteries established by the Buddha during the 45 years of his ministry was situated in wooded areas. While the setting for these monasteries varied considerably in wildness, 
ranging from benign fruit orchards to forbidding jungle thickets and mountainsides, they all shared certain features in common. The Vinya Mahavagga gives a description of suitable places for a monastery. Being neither too far nor too near a village, suitable for coming and going, accessible for those seeking what is beneficial, not crowded in the day, quiet and still at night, possessing an atmosphere of solitude, undisturbed by people, suitable for seclusion. Vinaya Mahavagga, 1, section 13 Since the time of the Buddha, monastics with minds liberated from defilement, able to live in any environment without mental suffering, have always chosen trees and silence over buildings and noise. It would seem that forests and lonely places are the natural habitat of the Arahant. One of the most surprising passages in the Pali Canon is the lyrical verse attributed to Venerable Maha Kasapa, the great ascetic and probably the gruffest, most forbidding monk in the suttas. Like towering peaks of dark blue clouds, like splendid edifices are these rocks, where the birds' sweet voices fill the air. These rocky heights delight my heart. With glades refreshed by cooling rain, resounding with the calls of crested birds, the cliffs resorted to by seers, these rocky heights delight my heart. Teragata verses 1067-1068 In many of his discourses, the Buddha encouraged monks to live in the forest. The vital importance that the Buddha attributed to it may be discerned by his declaration that as long as monks continued to find satisfaction in forest dwellings, the Dhammavinaya would not decline. The advantages of forest dwelling begin with the physical. In a hot climate, trees provide cool shade that enables monks to practice sitting and walking meditation throughout the day. Secondly, Forest dwellings provide physical seclusion from disturbing and stimulating experiences that can disrupt the training. In the Buddhist understanding, the human relationship to sense experience, mediated by eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind, may best be conceived as addiction. The forest monastery in this analogy is akin to a rehab center. Just as these institutions are situated far from the surroundings in which the patient's addiction flourishes, so too the forest monastery provides distance from worldly influences. Until the mind is strong, unnecessary exposure to the triggers of addictive behavior needlessly jeopardize the efforts to free the mind. Sense pleasures are not condemned as evil. They are, however, considered to have strong effects on the unenlightened mind inimical to higher progress in Dhamma. The world of the senses is seen as drawing the mind outwards in a way that is inherently agitating, while the intoxication that results from sense pleasures and the desire for their continuation and increase easily overrides moral judgments. The absorbing nature of sense pleasures impedes development of the subtlety of perception regarding internal states that must be sustained for long periods in effective spiritual cultivation.
For these reasons, the monastic lives in an environment where the opportunity to enjoy such pleasures is drastically reduced. By simplifying his world, he is able to understand more clearly how it works. Luang Po would often refer to the three kinds of seclusion, viveka, mentioned in the texts. Physical seclusion provides the optimum supporting conditions for mental seclusion, i.e. the state of concentration secluded from the hindrances. This, in turn, creates the basis for the ultimate seclusion from defilements. In the Anguttara Nikaya 10s, Sutta 72, the Buddha taught that sound is like a thorn that prevents the mind from entering deep states of meditative calm. Forest monasteries provide a respite from the more invasive noises, although in Thailand today, few are completely unaffected by the sounds of road traffic and village loudspeakers. And yet, Southeast Asian forests are by no means silent places. During the rainy season in particular, they throb with life. The same heat and humidity that humans can find so enervating seem to swell the exuberance of other creatures. The volume of noises they produce can be considerable. Birdsong, the deep ung ang ung ang nighttime bellowing of bullfrogs following heavy rain. The gecko lizards, tukke, tukke. The chorus of cicadas piercing the dusk. These sounds are as familiar to forest monks as traffic noise is to an urban dweller. Strangely enough, forest noise, even at its most raucous, does not detract from the sense of peace in the monastery. It tends to be the associations evoked by sounds, rather than their oral impact, that disturbs the meditator. Luang Po once joked that whereas a newly ordained monk could hear birds singing at the tops of their voices in a tree outside his kuti and hardly notice it, the faintest sound of a female singer wafting into the forest from a village loudspeaker, could turn his mind upside down. Monks intent on the path of practice have always been drawn to the forests because secluded environments support the development of sense restraint, fewness of wishes, contentment, love of solitude and introspection, the core virtues of a monastic vocation. Living in nature demands care and respect for one's surroundings and a patient acceptance of a world over which one has only limited control. While the man-made rhythms of urban life are busy, purposeful and stressful, the rhythms of nature are cyclical and timeless, exerting a steady, calming effect on the mind. But perhaps the greatest advantage in living in the forest is that the monastic is surrounded by natural processes demonstrating at all times the nature of arising, growth, decay and disappearance. Internal investigation of these qualities is much enhanced when they are being revealed in the external world. Lumpur encouraged his disciples to wake up to the simple truths that surrounded them. Nature is full of teachings for all of us. A wise person learns from the things around him in the forest. The earth, the rocks, the trees, the creepers. It's as if all these things are ready and willing to give us advice and teachings.
when we consider it well, we'll see that forms, sounds, smells, tastes, etc. are only our enemies because we still lack wisdom. In fact, they are excellent teachers. He drew an analogy with his attempts to feed the forest chickens when he first came to live at Watpapong. After checking for danger again and again, these wary, suspicious creatures eventually discovered that the rice he scattered on the ground for them was in fact safe. Thus they came to see that something that they had originally viewed with great mistrust was of great advantage to them. In the same way, he said that the wise came to see that sense objects that had formerly been perceived by them as being dangerous to their practice had only seemed so because of wrong thinking, wrong view, wrong consideration. In fact, sense objects gave useful knowledge and the means by which to realize liberation. Living in the forest was beneficial in many ways to Dhamma practice, but it was not to be attached to. Monks were to be wary of allowing themselves to be content with the merely superficial peace of mind that they experienced through living in an environment secluded from disturbing, distracting sense objects. They should constantly remind themselves that it was a means to an end. We don't retreat from forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical sensations and mental objects as an admission of defeat, but in order to train ourselves to nurture our wisdom. Liberation didn't lie in escaping from the world of sense objects, but in transforming the experience of them through wisdom. One year, Luang Po sent an Australian monk, Ajahn Jagaro, to spend the rains retreat in a branch monastery more than 150 kilometers away from Wat Bapong. During the retreat, Luang Po paid a visit. How are you getting on, Jagaro? Why are you so thin? I'm suffering, Luang Po. I don't feel so good. What are you suffering about? Why are you unhappy? It's because I'm living so far from my teacher. What do you mean? You're living with six Ajans. Isn't that enough for you? A look of puzzlement came across Ajahn Jagaro's face. Ajahn eyes, Ajahn ears, Ajahn nose, Ajahn tongue, Ajahn body, and Ajahn mind. These are your teachers. Listen to them well, watch them well, and you'll become wise. Observing the creatures that shared the forest with the Sangha could also be a cause of insight, even if, as was the case at Watbapong, there were few larger animals to be seen. By the mid-1950s, most of the large wild animals indigenous to northeast Thailand such as tigers, wild boar and elephants had disappeared from the rural areas of Ubon, remaining only in the more remote mountainous areas on the Lao and Cambodian borders. In Bapong, situated relatively close to a number of long-established villages, only smaller creatures survived. Wild chickens, squirrels and chipmunks, flying foxes, flying lemurs, tortoises, snakes, civet cats, mouse deer and various kinds of birds. Over the years, 
Luang Po did everything he could to encourage local people to give up hunting. But although he achieved some notable successes, any overall decline in hunting was probably due as much to the decimation of the hunted as it was to an increased restraint on the part of the hunters. Regardless of what was going on outside its gates, Luang Po was at least able to maintain the monastery as a refuge for vulnerable creatures. On the large sign at the monastery gate, it was prominently declared that the monastery was a sanctuary, a kit abhaitan, literally an area in which the gift of freedom from fear is extended to all beings. Often, forest creatures would form the subjects of homilies delivered to the Sangha, none more so than the forest chickens. Look how spry the forest chickens are, how wary of danger they are, and they're no gluttons. The moment they become conscious of a threat, even while they're eating, they're away. These forest chickens are vigilant, they protect themselves, and they can fly high. When they sleep, they rest on tree branches and treetops, each one to himself. Not like domestic chickens, they eat a lot, they're heavy, they're ponderous. They can't fly high, they don't have their wits about them. Even if one manages to run off, it soon gets mauled by dogs. Domestic chickens get attention from human beings, they're looked after and it makes them heedless. The forest chickens are different. They're alert and self-reliant. They go about their business without any fuss. They're punctual. Come rain or shine, even if it's bitterly cold, when it's time to crow, they crow. In fact, they're so reliable, we use them as an alarm clock. They're consistent about their work, and they never demand any reward from anyone for doing it. They live at ease with nature. They don't seem to get attached to anything. It's almost as if they have their own kind of Dhamma practice. They don't think a lot. They're not inquisitive or doubtful. They don't look for things to stir up their minds. Working with Sensuality the collection of discourses known as the Anguttara Nikaya begins with the words, Monks, I see nothing that can disturb the mind of a man as much as the form, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch of a woman. Monks, I see nothing that can disturb the mind of a woman as much as the form, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch of a man. In the Vinaya on one occasion, the Buddha exhorts the monks, Have I not described in many ways the abandoning of sensual desires, the full understanding of perceptions of sensual desires, the curing of thirst for sensual desires, the eradication of thoughts of sensual desires, the allaying of the fever of sensual desires. And in the Anguttara Nikaya 4s, Sutra 11, the Buddha is equally emphatic. Monks, if a sensual thought, a thought of ill will, 
or a thought of harming arises in a monk while walking, standing, sitting or lying down, and he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it and obliterate it, then that monk is said to be devoid of ardour and wise fear of consequences. He is constantly and continually lazy and lacking in energy while walking, standing, sitting or lying down. The first expulsion offence of the Vinaya states that a monk who commits an act of sexual intercourse immediately forfeits his monkhood. Although this is the most important of the Vinaya rules governing the expression of sexual desire, it is by no means the only one. Masturbation, lewd speech, and making lustful contact with a woman's body, for example, constitute major breaches of the Vinaya, requiring periods of penance and rehabilitation. Other rules require monks to avoid being alone with a woman or conducting a conversation with a woman without another male present. The strictness and comprehensiveness of these rules point to some of the central tenets of Buddhist monasticism, namely, that sexual desire is amongst the greatest obstacles to the highest spiritual attainments. But initially, the expression of sexual desire may be skillfully restrained through mindfulness of precepts. That sexual desire itself can and should be attenuated and eventually eliminated through practice of the Eightfold Path. That, as sexual desire is rooted in identification with the body and mind, liberation from that identification inevitably entails cessation of sexual desire. And that an enlightened being is free from all sexual thoughts and perceptions. Luang Po's exhortations on the topic of sensuality were usually blunt in tone, but spiced with humour. Sometimes he would warn monks of the dangers of letting cobras spread their hoods, or, worst of all, allowing them to spit. Sexual feelings arose naturally in the untrained mind, he said, as they were a part of nature, but it was a part that monks must refuse to indulge. Giving harbour to sexual thoughts and fantasies was one of the most foolish errors that a monk could commit. A vicious circle would be created. The more the monk indulged in sexual thoughts, the more his meditation would suffer. The more his meditation suffered, the less able he would be to protect his mind from indulging in sexual thoughts. A serious transgression against the vinya or disrobing would most likely follow. If you still enjoy the form or the odour of a woman, you're still dwelling in the sensual realm. You still haven't managed to let go of sense objects. You're monks in name only. The threefold training provided the basis for dealing with sensuality. Firstly, commitment to the vinaya, boasted by wise shame and wise fear of consequences, was to be used to guard against the gumma created by lustful actions and speech. Secondly, patiently enduring of sexual feelings was to support mindfulness in preventing the rapid proliferation of sensual thoughts that tends to follow from an initial perception. At the same time, 
meditation was to provide a clearly superior solution to the human need for pleasure. Thirdly, wise reflection was to be developed in order to undo the false perceptions upon which lust thrived. The importance of wise reflection was vital. Lust could only be sustained by restricting attention to those parts of the body that encouraged it and by disregarding those that engender indifference or disgust. Even those parts of the physical body that do provoke lust are only able to do so when they are looked at in a certain way and when certain information or perspectives are ignored. By opening the mind to all those aspects of the body that the lustful mind represses, lust is deprived of its foundation. The loathsome aspects of monks' own male bodies were more easily seen. As they practiced constantly observing their bodies with an equanimous mind, they could not help but be confronted with the unattractiveness of such phenomena as sweat, phlegm, urine, excrement, etc., but the recognition that women's bodies were every bit as coarse and full of unattractive parts as a man's was harder to accept. Longpo's words, intended to disabuse monks of such a coarse mental state as lust, were correspondingly earthy. On one occasion, he spoke to an infatuated disciple. Look more closely. Delusion arises in your mind when you don't meditate. Are you going to let yourself be fooled by the beauty of skin? Consider what's underneath it. Have you really thought about that? What's got into your mind that you won't let it pull free of these desires? They're causing you suffering. Do you want to go back to jail again? Are you in love with her waist holes? There's two holes and they're waist holes. If they're not washed, they stink or don't you believe me? Mucus runs out of these holes. You don't even realize that you're infatuated with a waist hole. She's full of waist holes. Her face is full of them. It's crazy to be attached to all that. And yet, you're ready for more. You still want to go back and die in the same old place. Haven't you had enough? Sensual desire doomed them to rebirth and just one nine-month term of imprisonment in a woman's womb should be more than enough to make somebody not want to have to go through it again. But incredibly, you've passed through these filthy things countless times before, and you still feel no compunction. Comparisons involving disgusting holes or sewage pipes were Luang Po's forte, but when speaking of sensual desire itself, rather than its object, his similes were more wide-ranging. He pointed out that the pleasure was short-lived and was usually followed by some discomfort. As soon as you've dealt with the discomfort, then you want more. Referring to his own practice, he once said, Once I'd become a monk, I became afraid of it all. I saw more suffering in sensual pleasures than enjoyment. It was as if there was this nice sweet banana. You knew it was sweet, but now you'd found out that the banana had been poisoned. Even though you were aware of the sweetness, you also knew that if you ate it, you'd die. 
That was the view that was in my mind all the time. I was constantly aware of the poison, and so I drew back more and more. Now, after many years as a monk, it doesn't look even slightly appetizing. As for extreme cases, in which no amount of meditation could reduce the mental agitation, Luang Po had a special piece of advice guaranteed to send a shiver down a young monk's spine. Give it a good whack with an axe handle. Then, see if it dares lift its head again. But the word karma, or sensual desire, has a wide-ranging meaning. It's not solely confined to sexual desire. When people become monks, they often say how happy they are to have left the sensual world behind them, but look more closely at the nature of sensual indulgence. If feelings of like and dislike arise when you see a form with your eyes, then you are still indulging in sensuality. Any unmindful contact through eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body or mind is sensory indulgence. Another analogy to point out the drawbacks of sensuality returned to the world of dogs. Practice is tough. The teacher instructs you to fit into the monastic form, but it's hard. You're already attached to the flavor of sensuality. Like dogs, if all you give a dog to eat every day is plain rice, it may still eat so much it gets as fat as a pig. But if one day you tip some curry over the rice, two plates are all you need, then... After that, the dog will refuse plain rice. That's how fast attachment takes hold. Unless we reflect on our use of the four requisites, then forms, sounds, odors and flavors can destroy our practice. It was not that monks were to keep silent all the time. Developing right speech is an essential element of the Eightfold Path and nourishing and supportive relationships with fellow monks would be impossible without it. Nevertheless, Luang Po urged monks to observe how often seeking out conversation with friends was little more than an attempt to escape from themselves. But habits were strong, and it was not always so easy to draw the line between appropriate and inappropriate speech. So there would be a stern Dhamma talk, a period of strictness, and then, gradually, the trivial conversations would start to spring up once more, until the next talk damped them down again. Luang Po never seemed to expect it to be any other way, but he did consider that a clear standard and ideal that monks found difficult to live up to was better than no standard at all. At the very least, the standard honoured the monks who were inclined to keep themselves somewhat aloof, and it was obvious to everyone that there was a correlation between the avoidance of socialising and devotion to meditation. A favourite location for idle conversation was the shed where the monks washed and dyed their robes. To prevent this, Luang Por instructed the monks to either practice walking meditation or make toothwoods while they waited for their robes to dry. 
Luang Po's guti was not too far from the dying shed, and if the sound of conversation reached him, he would walk over to admonish the culprits. You've let the dogs bite you again. Tudong Tudong, the Thai form of the Pali word Dutanga, refers to the ascetic practices allowed by the Buddha. In Thailand, the word is most often heard in the phrase Bai Tudong, or to go on Tudong. Going on Tudong is the practice by which monks walk through the countryside and in lonely places, either as a form of pilgrimage or to find secluded spots for meditation. Monks on Tudong keep many of the traditional ascetic practices, thus the adoption of that name rather than the more accurate Jarik, which comes from the Pali Jarika, meaning wandering. Going on Tudong is one of the key practices of the forest monk, and one on which Luang Po gave a great deal of advice. The Buddha praised going on Tudong as proclaiming the holy life. The holy life means the refined training practices, the inner practices. It's not that the walking or the journey itself is Tudong. The real meaning of Tudong are the practices undertaken on that journey. He explained further, We go on Tudong in order to experience physical solitude. When we come to cremation forests, or quiet mountain valleys, then we stop to meditate. When we gain the seclusion of physical solitude, it forms a cause for mental seclusion and the mind becomes lucidly calm. Two virtues he stressed as all important for the Tudong monk were wise shame and wise fear of the consequences of one's actions. He said that in possession of these two qualities, Wherever a monk may go on Tudong, his mind will be bright. When you go to visit different teachers, don't start comparing different monasteries. Take whatever is good from each one. Don't worry that you will need all kinds of things, and then take a great load of requisites. Once you start walking, you'll see your mistake and end up having to give it all away. Tudong is preparing your mind for practice. Soap isn't essential. You can rub yourself down with a piece of cloth. It's not necessary to take a toothbrush. A piece of wood my cut will do. A bathing cloth and a dipper is all you need for a bath. You can survive like that. That's the way of Tudong. By the mid-1960s, Luang Po considered the tradition to be in decline. The great respect afforded to Tudong monks by lay Buddhists had led unscrupulous monks to take advantage of it by masquerading as ascetics in order to garner donations. Scathing about the corruption of the Tudong tradition that he saw around him, Luang Po would refer to the Tudong ideals that he had inherited. Even if there were vehicles, you didn't make use of them. You relied on your mindfulness and wisdom. You travelled with physical pain. You looked at the painful feelings. You went contemplating your mind. You went for coolness, for practice, to search, to look for Dhamma and peace. 
you went into the mountains and forests looking for truth. Every now and again, Lung Po would lead small groups of monks and lay attendants on Tudong expeditions. These trips, usually to the more remote areas of Ubon province bordering Laos or Cambodia, might last as long as two or three months. They gave Lung Po the opportunity to see his disciples at close quarters dealing with adversity. He would use their daily experiences as a teaching device. A small lump of human excrement by the side of the road could lead to a reflection on the human body. Emerging mushrooms and dead tree stumps prompted homilies on the impermanent nature of things. As Lung Po got older and was unable to lead the monks on Tudong himself, he would occasionally send groups of three or four monks to stay in cremation forests outside local villages. The cremation of those who had died an unnatural death and whose confused and unhappy spirit was believed to be roaming around was a favorite occasion for this practice. Lung Po pushed his disciples to confront their fear of spirits as he himself had done many years before. Monks given permission by Lung Po to embark on a Tudong trip would first ask for his blessings and guidance. Ajahn Jan went on many such walks and remembered much of the advice he received. He recalled that Luang Po would encourage Tudong monks to keep returning to the three refuges of Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. They should humbly invite the qualities of clear knowing, truth and good practice into their hearts. With Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha dwelling within them, they would be joyful, energetic and mindful and develop a wisdom that could deal effectively with any problem that might arise. Going on Tudong meant testing themselves against all kinds of obstacles. Those obstacles were not to be feared or resented. It was through facing up to them that they would come to understand the truth of things. Luang Po gave detailed instructions on how to minimize the dangers from human and non-human beings. He suggested that in areas populated by wild animals such as tigers and elephants, it would be better to avoid eating meat, as the subtle odor emitted from the body after meat-eating could provoke an attack. If a monk did come face to face with a wild creature, he should simply keep still, and in most cases, the creature would simply go its way. If it did not, then evasive measures would have to be taken. Ajahn Jan took to heart Lung Po's advice on how to deal with dangerous animals. He said, if an animal, say a wild bull, means to harm you, then it will usually lower its head, but it can't get very low. So if you can't get away, then duck down below its horns and away to one side, or try opening your glot. If the animal is startled by that, it will run away. If there's a ditch nearby, then go down into it. The bull will be unable to gore you properly down there. When bulls are about to butt, they shut their eyes. If your mind is really firm, then stand your ground, and as it runs in, then at the last moment, move away at a slight angle. But you might not be quick enough. It depends on your strength of mind and agility. 
Luang Po also explained the protocols for staying in caves. Those in which monks with bad sila had stayed in the past should be avoided. The monk should make clear his pure intentions before entering, as described by Ajahn Jan. Luang Po said that if there were fierce animals, or local spirits or guardian deities in the area, then, when you arrived, you should stand at the entrance and make a resolution. I am about to enter this cave. I come as a friend, in order to help you be free of suffering, not as an enemy to do you harm. You should establish your intentions in that way, and put any animals or other beings inside at their ease. There's no need to doubt or be suspicious of me. I've come here to put forth effort in my meditation to do good. If you wish to continue living here and share the cave with me, then please do as you wish. Having first made that determination, he said, you should then enter the cave purposefully and with mindfulness. The greatest protection was always morality. He said that the most important thing was not to break my precepts, because if I did, something untoward would happen. Morality is very important, and you must try to look after it with every breath, every step of the way. If you break your precepts, all kinds of unpleasant things can happen to you. Sometimes it might be stomachache. Sometimes you might rave deliriously in your sleep, have nightmares. Sometimes it might be animals or spirits coming to harm you, so keep reflecting on your morality. Luang Po said that going by yourself can be lonely. Going with a friend is good, two is a good number. But if three or four go together, it's too much, and it often leads to complications and turmoil. He cautioned me about conflicts with fellow monks, and advised me to be patient. If you go with a group of five monks for more than a month or two, there's usually only one or two left by the end. The combination of tiredness and harsh surroundings gives rise to arguments about things like the route or the places to rest. Some monks can be forgetful. They leave things behind and have to go back for them, which annoys their friends. There are many problems, particularly with shortages of requisites. To go on Tudong, you need a great deal of patience and endurance. He said that if more than one monk goes to stay in a cremation forest, you should stay well apart. Although, if Luang Po himself was one of the group, he would cough every now and then, just to encourage you. He always stressed that we shouldn't be hesitant about the practice. It was correct. It was right. Don't be fearful about breaking a leg or crippling yourself. There's no need to fear death. Monks would often visit forest monasteries during their Tudong walk. Luang Po cautioned us that it was important when entering into the company of other groups of monks not to be conceited or attached to conventions. The main criterion for choosing places to stay on Tudong was seclusion. After a few days in one spot, lay people would often start to come to visit and the advantages to meditation would be lost. 
you may start getting offered good food. The place is beautiful, and it's comfortable, and you can get attached to these things. That's why it's good to move on after three days, or seven days at most. You don't go on Tudong for comfort and pleasure and good food. You go for the benefit to your practice. Don't stay long enough to give rise to a sense of loss when you leave. If you stay longer, attachments to lay people can arise. Tudong was to wear away the defilements, not to accumulate new ones. Monks should constantly be monitoring their feelings towards their surroundings. If you're somewhere and you don't like it, and suddenly you have to leave today, right now, or if you like it and you want to stay for a long time, then it means that you're following craving and desire. Lung Po told us that we shouldn't go sightseeing. He told us to look at the inner sights instead. He said, you don't need to go and visit a lot of teachers. Go and stay in cremation forests. Maintain your practice of chanting and bowing in such places. Be restrained and don't stay anywhere for long, or you will form attachments to the lay people. He said that if you speak to lay people, you should take into account their level of understanding. Don't be contentious or aggressive. He warned us about people coming to ask for lottery numbers. He said, tell them you don't know and that you will give them something better, the principles of practice. If they pester you and you can't get away from them, then teach about practice, the five precepts, the eight precepts, and let them come up with the numbers themselves. Examine people's characters. They may be dangerous to you. But on the other hand, they may have previously looked after monks. Then they will come and attend to you. At night time, they will bring their families to take the precepts, and on observance day, they will come to take the eight precepts. He gave advice on how to deal with questions that might get asked. He said that if people come and ask you about levels of jhana and enlightenment, then tell them you're not interested in that way of talking. Our way of practice comes down to whether you can abandon greed, hatred and delusion. Are you grasping at material things? If someone abuses you, do you get angry? As for different absorptions, our teachers don't use those terms. They teach you to watch your mind, and by doing so, to free yourself from Mara's snare. Lung Po said that monks on Tudong could spread the Dhamma through the quality of their sense restraint. Sometimes their deportment could so inspire those who saw them that it might lead them to request teachings. He told the story of how Venerable Sariputta, while still the member of another sect, saw the Arahant Venerable Asaji on his arms round. The colour of Venerable Asaji's robe was sober. He seemed much more composed in his movements than members of the other sects. He walked peacefully, neither too fast nor too slow, but alert to his every movement and the environment he was walking through. Venerable Sariputta became inspired and approached him. As a result of the short teaching he received from Venerable Asaji, 
Venerable Sariputta realized stream entry and subsequently became one of the two great disciples. Long Po said that on Tudong, you see things you've never seen before, hear things you've never heard before, and get to know things you never knew before. With wisdom and self-restraint, every experience on Tudong could be beneficial, both to yourself and others. Medicines Tudong monks like to seek out secluded places to practice, but places that are far from the hustle and bustle of the world are also far from modern conveniences, and most crucially, they may be hours from the nearest hospital. Thus, it's important for Tudong monks to have a knowledge of herbal medicines, so as to be able to make use of the things nature gives freely to treat their illnesses. In a memoir, Ajahn Dilok wrote, Lung Po once told the Sangha that before going on Tudong, he would finely pound somlom leaves together with salt and then pack the mixture tightly into a length of bamboo and roast it, which would leave a dried stick within the bamboo. When he wanted to eat some, he'd dig it out of the tube with a knife. He said that if you have no tonic to drink in the afternoon, then you can eat a little of this instead. For malaria, he recommended eating neem leaves and about six inches of boropet vine a day as a prophylactic. If you have malaria badly, then you should pound the boropet, extract the sap and drink it. Some people like to cut boropet into little rings and lightly roast them with salt. Its aroma is as good as coffee. Long Po said that he got a lot of his remedies especially those for snake bites, from his brother, Paula. Another medicine that Tudong monks have used successfully to cure snake bite is the one allowed by the Buddha in the Vinaya. In the event of a snake bite, you are allowed to cut living wood, burn it and mix the wood ash with urine and excrement and having strained it, give it to the bitten person. It causes violent vomiting and can eliminate the poison. There was an army colonel who heard Long Po mention this a number of times and it stuck in his memory. One day he took a group of soldiers on patrol in the jungle and one of them got bitten by a snake. The colonel remembered Long Po's words. He asked for donations of excrement and urine. They were mixed together and forced down the man's throat. At that point, his jaw was already stiff. He went cold and then started to vomit. He survived. The idea of drinking urine might seem repulsive, but in India, its medicinal value has been recognized since ancient times and the Buddha allowed the consumption of cow urine for medicinal purposes. The older generation of Isan Tudong monks pickled human urine whereas these days the younger generation are generally not so keen. In the old days they would bury earthenware jars of urine, ginger, lemongrass, galangal and kaffir lime peel, sometimes diluted with water, sometimes not, for months or even years. Then they would filter and boil it with fresh ginger and salt. The resultant brew was considered an excellent remedy for digestive problems.
the monk. Luang Po spent some thirty years training monastics. It was the main work of his life. He experienced successes and failures, and he learned from both. The standard of practice he established, and the goals he set for his disciples, were expressed most beautifully by the Buddha himself in the Dhammapada. For the wise monk, these are the first things to cultivate: sense control, contentment, observance of the Patimoka rules. Association with keen friends who lead a pure life. Verses three seven five to three seven six. Just as the jasmine sheds its own withered flower, so should you, O monk, cast off lust and hatred. Verse three seven seven. By yourself, censure yourself. By yourself, examine yourself. Thus, self-guarded and mindful too, shall you, monk, live in bliss. Verse three seven nine. Dwelling in the Dhamma, delighting in the Dhamma, investigating the Dhamma, remembering the Dhamma, that monk falls not away from the Dhamma sublime. Verse three six four. He who grasps at neither I nor mine, neither in mentality nor materiality, who grieves not for what is not, such a one indeed is called a monk. Verse three six seven.